Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Australian Debbie Malone is an internationally acclaimed psychic, clairvoyant, medium, and psychic detective who has been helping clients for over the past 30 years. Debbie has seen and sensed spirits since she was a child and has experienced seven near-death experiences. Since that time, Debbie has provided a link for thousands of people to communicate with their loved ones who have passed on. Debbie's best-selling books, Never Alone and Clues from Beyond document some of the most important work she has done with Australian law enforcement over the past 29 years. Debbie assists law enforcement in Australia in bringing new light to unsolved murder investigations and missing person cases. The information Debbie receives has been very successful in providing new lines of inquiry, criminal profiles, and the identities of potential suspects. Due to Debbie's mediumship abilities, she can contact the deceased victim and provide insight into who, what, when, and why the crime was committed. Today on Death by Misadventure, I talk with Debbie Malone about one of her most famous cases, the murder of Lynn Dawson, that was recently featured in the true crime podcast, The Teacher's Pet. Debbie has also worked with the Death by Misadventure team on our ongoing cold case investigation of the unsolved murder of music executive Brett Cantor. It's a fascinating discussion on life after death and her work as a psychic detective. I'm JC Nova. This is Death by Misadventure. Hi, how are you, JC? Great to join you. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. I want to get started asking you about how you first discovered you had the psychic gift. 
When I was a child, I um, used to see spirits in my room and I had a near-death experience at three and then another at 13 and I used to sort of feel things around me. But my mum just said I had an overactive imagination so I kind of shut it down. And as I got older and in my late 20s, I had a few more near-death experiences and then I had a miscarriage and from that point onwards, I woke up and just saw dead people. So how did that affect you as a child? That must have been pretty shocking. Did it give you nightmares? Did you feel comfortable? Yeah, it was really frightening just seeing things in my room and hearing a lot of voices and things floating around. And when I was 15, my beautiful grandfather passed away and I was very close to him. He was the first person I ever lost and he used to come and visit me, but I felt comforted because at least I knew he was okay. But it was the other noises and voices. I was always frightened of the dark and it was hard. My mum and dad just thought I was, you know, that I was just wanting attention, but I was actually terrified because they always waited till I went to sleep or tried to go to sleep and then they'd come and be in the room with me. So did you have any other friends that shared similar gifts or was it something that you had to keep secret? Yeah, it was something I had to keep secret. And after the the near-death experience at 13, I spoke to some friends at school about it and they just thought I was going a bit crazy. But I did discover a book by Raymond J. Moody called Life After Life and I couldn't read that book quick enough and that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to sort of realise that there was something going on but I decided it was too odd for other people to understand so I just tried to shut it down. That's really interesting. I read the same book. I had my first near-death experience when I was four. I think I was four years old. I was at a beach church retreat, and I slipped into a cove, and I was drowning. And I could see myself like in the cove drowning, and my little friend was trying to get someone's attention. And finally, a 16-year-old boy saw me and came in and grabbed me and got me out of the, out of the water. And then after that, I felt way more intuitive. My mom was always supportive, but at the same time, she also told me I should keep it a secret. And then I read the same book, which I feel like was very helpful to me as well. Isn't it interesting how these things can happen? And I do feel when we have these experiences, it actually makes us feel different or or isolated because you don't know where you belong. Well, too, you have to be careful what you share with others because sometimes people are open to hearing about it and others obviously might be afraid. And then depending on if you're religious, some may think it's, oh, the work of the devil. So I'm just curious, like, do you think that all of us are intuitive, especially children, and that if parents support that intuitive nature that kids may have, that that they can enhance that? Oh, definitely, definitely. I do think we're all born with intuition and and psychic abilities. Intuition is probably more an acceptable way to speak about it. But yes, children are generally most psychic between 0 to 10. I think it's once we start to go to school and we mix with our friends and and we sort of realise that that invisible friend that we had with us and no one else can see them, it's kind of makes us realise that maybe not everyone can see. It is the fear factor as well. A lot of people will come to me about their children who have past lives one of my children, he used to talk to me about his uh, the men in his room with the arms and legs missing and the nails in their head, and we ended up finding out that they were soldiers, and we actually traced back his past life, and we found out that he was a soldier in the First World War. You know, he went under hypnosis, and ever since he's done that, now that story, he understands that story, and it's sort of like it doesn't bother him anymore. But it's hard when you have your children telling you about these horrible things in the room, and you can't really help them with it. 
Some of the books that you've written are Never Alone, Clues from Beyond, Awaken Your Psychic Abilities, and Always With You. Which one is your favorite? I actually think Awakening the Psychic Abilities because when I discovered my abilities, there wasn't really any information or books out there. I remember going to a spiritual shop and asked the lady in there if there was a book I could get and she went to the back and she said, oh, it's under the back counter, that's called a cult. And it kind of freaked me out thinking, oh, is that sort of a cult small clusters, you know, witchcraft or, you know, sort of more demonic kind of things. So I've actually written this book to try and help other people understand their gifts because people have the same questions that I had when I was understanding it. So it's wonderful for me to sort of help people and guide them along the way and assist them with their own spiritual journey. I remember when I first discovered your work, I actually saw you on a TV show called Sensing Murder. I think it was a true crime show. Is it a true crime show from Australia or is it from New Zealand? From Australia. It was filmed in Australia first and then New Zealand took on the franchise afterwards. I really love the show. I think it's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about, I think you were on a few episodes, how they discovered you and what it was like working on the show? It was really interesting working on the show. They would have three psychics on each episode or filming each episode, and then the two that had the closest information were the two that would go to, to air. So they would fly us in from interstate. We wouldn't know anything about the case. They would take us straight in separately. So they would take us into the studio. They would give us a photograph or an item to hold, and we had an hour to tune in, and then that was it. And then the next day they would take us to the location. Sometimes we would be blindfolded. We wouldn't know anything about the case and they would just more or less say, all right, what do you see? You know, sometimes it might be out in the bush somewhere or it might be just taken to the front of a house or you had to find your way. And usually the spirit would guide you where to go and I could become the spirit, I could be the murderer, I would see things, you know, through the, the victim's eyes. I think the hardest part for me was... We only had the two days to film and that was it. You could never add any more information to the episode. And I found after I'd made contact or gone to the location, I'd fly back to Sydney and I'd have a flood of information, but I was never allowed to add that to the show. And were these cases, I can't remember, but were they cold cases that had been solved or they were still unsolved cases? They were all unsolved cases and one case in particular, which I didn't make it to air on because they didn't agree with what I saw. I worked with the head of the task force on this particular case and I had to go undercover because the murderer had made contact with me and sent me a lot of information. So I had to fly interstate and actually sit with him with, and record his information for the police. Was he ever arrested? No, this is the most frustrating part. I had over a thousand pages of information and we had the recording and then they didn't do anything with it. Did they feel like because the way the information was accessed that it might not hold up in court? I don't know. It was a cold, the case had been closed. The man, he wants to be caught. This is one of the things that really rattles me. I just do not understand why they haven't taken it further. And the person who was head of the task force that I work with, he now lives overseas. So there's nothing I can really do with him either. So it's really disappointing. So do you consider yourself a psychic detective or a psychic medium that works on cold cases? I would consider myself both because at times I will be wholly and solely called in on a case to work as a psychic detective to you know assist police. But I, yes, I am a psychic medium and detective and sometimes through my everyday psychic medium work and readings, I might 
have a client that will book in and I won't be told that there's it's, it's to do with the murder, but then I will become involved in the case at a later stage. I know that you've worked on another famous case and a very popular podcast called Teacher's Pet. Can you share a little bit more information about the case, who the victim was, and what your involvement was? Yes. I was out in the garden one day and I was just pottering around and my husband came out and said, hey, Deb, you better come inside. You might want to watch this. And there was a show called Australian Story. And the episode was called Looking for Lynn. And I only saw about the last 10 minutes of it. And when I when I started to watch it, they were just, there was a family saying they were looking for their loved one and they just didn't know what happened to her. And then I started to see things unfold. So I actually contacted the producers of the show and asked whether they'd be interested in information I started to tune into. They then put me in contact with the family and the police and I was called in by the police to go and meet the family. So I went over to their house and I was given Lynn's watch and some photographs. They actually filmed what I was seeing and saying and I started to get all these visions about her being given alcohol and being unconscious and then there was abuse in the house and I could see that the killer, and I, I could see the killer was the husband, but I could see that he had tried to engage a hitman to try and get rid of Lynn, but then he actually um, didn't want to pay the amount of money for that. And I could see that he'd had another young girl in his life. I saw him taking her up to the back area of the house and there was a big rock at the back of the house and I saw him putting her up there but I also saw like there was a piece of carpet or something put on top and then I saw lime being applied over the top of that. The police did some searches around the the house but there had been a lot of building work that had gone in around the back area of the house. They'd they'd put retaining walls in so and put a lot of landfill so they've never really located her body. Then through the Teacher's Pet podcast, the person in charge of the podcast actually got hold of the police recording he used the audio in the podcast, but without my permission. So I know that the trial was televised, or at least media coverage, a lot of media coverage about the trial in Australia, and you actually had to testify, is that correct? Yes, I was the first psychic meeting that's ever been called to testify on a, on a police case, which was quite interesting. Was he found guilty? No, it's still it's still pending well no he's been found guilty but then it's still the whole court case is still they've still got to finalize it is he sitting in prison or is he at home he's in prison wow and how did it feel to be involved in the case do you feel when you're involved and obviously this is this is very intense do you feel the victim with you are you like seeing it through her eyes or she's beside you telling you? I'm just curious how you're getting the information. Yes, I do see it through her eyes. I I watch it through his eyes as well. I actually watch it as though I'm watching a movie. It's terrible because you can feel their fear, you can feel their stress. When I was in court on the stand, it was really interesting because she was right beside me and because of what I do being a psychic medium and there was a lot of media there, they were all trying to say to me, oh, you know, did you, do you just have a vision or have you, they're asking if I had mental illness and asking me all these different things about did my spirit guide tell me how it happened and they were really trying, you know, and was I part of the occult? So the perpetrator's representation were really trying to sort of poo-poo the fact that a, a psychic could actually be aware of what had happened in the case. 
The one interesting thing I found when they asked me where I thought Lynn's body was, and I said there was a connection to the big rock at the back of the house, and I was sitting in front of Dawson, his face just, he looked very startled and worried. The only problem is they had all the cameras on me, but they didn't have any cameras on him. So that really, I would have loved the police to have seen the reaction on his face. That's interesting. Did they ever find her body? No, they've never found her body. Oh, that's terrible. That particular case, and then me seeing the episode with you on Sensing Murder, you actually worked on a case with me, which is the unsolved murder of Brett Cantor, who was actually a friend of mine. He was murdered in 1993, and he was an A&R music rep for Chrysalis Music and part owner of The Dragonfly. And what I found fascinating about working with you, because we started working early together in the case, and this was before we actually got access to the coroner's report and the police report and the murder book, that some of the information that you gave us was later confirmed by the police when you shared with us that you thought that there were two men and a woman involved, and you talked about a blonde woman. And so it was really fascinating to fast forward six months later and we're sitting down at LAPD and going through the murder book and I've got two homicide detectives sitting next to me and two across from me and all the information that you gave us, they're like sharing with us. And it's the first time the murder book had ever been opened to anyone in the public and hadn't been looked at in over 20 years. So it was really interesting. Maybe you can share a little bit more about the experience of the information that you received about Brett and I guess, if you've gotten any more since we last spoke. For Brett, it was very frustrating because the truth just not being known. But when I did make contact with him, it was for me like watching a video of his life and even showing me the entry point in the back of the, in the laneway and just how it all came about. I think sometimes victims such as Brett, they feel the frustration because they want the truth to be known and also the feeling of betrayal. I think that's a big thing for them because sometimes there's other stories that have woven around what happened in the case and it's, you know, it's more about the truth to come out for him and the closure of the family. The one thing that I have always seen to do with this is that how appreciative he is of you that he wasn't forgotten because he felt that he was forgotten and was kind of like brushed under the carpet and it's like that he didn't matter, but you actually gave him a voice and that's what he's very, very appreciative of. Yeah, we actually have gotten quite a few new leads in the case, and we're doing an updated version of the podcast, and we'll be making an announcement later. But I did have an opportunity to talk to his ex-girlfriend. We interviewed her, and she gave us information that has never been heard before in new leads in the case. The police never spoke to her. So I was really surprised that a lot of information wasn't given to the police, not because it was their fault. It was people withholding information from them because they were afraid that they might meet a similar fate as Brett's if they talked. Definitely. I think yeah, that that's, was one of the big concerns. And I also see it's about joining the dots of other people that have gone missing in similar circumstances or in connection to the people that, that killed Brett. I'll share one other aspect of the case because we haven't spoken in a while. So I've been going to a dermatologist for 15 years and never told her I was producing a podcast. I would basically just go in. Sometimes she would share information about 
you know, vacation trip she went on with her boyfriend. And so it was just right around Thanksgiving in November. She said, oh, are you are you doing anything? And I, I said, well, you know, we're working on this updated true crime podcast called Dragonfly. And she was like, oh, I love true crime. Like, you know, send me the web link and I'll, I'll listen to it over the, you know, the holiday weekend with my guy. So two weeks later, I get a call from her office saying that she wanted to see me. And so I come into her office and she said, I have something to tell you. And I said, what? She goes, I knew Brett. And she said, I went to high school with Ron Goldman. Like everything that you said in the podcast is true. You know, she went on to share with me what she thought happened and also shared with me that her boyfriend at the time was actually a bouncer at one of the nightclubs and had almost made a similar fate as Brett from from some gang affiliation trying to get him to participate in criminal activities that he didn't want to do. And then she also shared with me a woman that went missing around the same time as Brett. And she said, oh, you should really look into this case. Wow. And it was so freaky and so weird that I have known her for so long and for her to share that with me and for her to know him. And I'm like, wow, LA really is a small world if you run in the same circles. But yeah, the information she provided us, which you know I can share with you later, that was pretty fascinating. And I really feel like kind of like almost like the information is revealed when the time is right. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. And I find that's one of the things working on cases. Sometimes you're frustrated, you want it now, but maybe not all of the pieces are completing the puzzle. So something has to drop in. You know, how do you think that psychics or psychic mediums or intuitives can work with police departments to help solve cases, whether it's Cold cases, murder cases, missing persons, like how would you like to see police departments work with other people that do the type of work that you do? I think that I'd like them to have a section where they have people that are, you know, willing to assist them. In the States over there, you've got findme.org and they have psychics that they utilise from all around the world and they use retired law enforcement and they're very, very successful in missing cases and and murder cases. So I wish Australia was a bit more open. A lot of the police officers are open to it, but then maybe their superiors are not. So, you know, it's it's a really difficult thing and then people sort of think you're doing it for your own personal gain. For me, I volunteer all of my time and I think if I have this ability and some of the information I use can be utilised to help others, then why not? You know, I think if we could work together, you know, as a collective whole, we could do a lot of good, you know, to the world and we could help a lot of families. It's just hope that we will, you know, maybe through the age of Aquarius, people opening up to the spiritual side, maybe people will be more understanding and accepting of, of these gifts. I think that sometimes when people think of psychic detectives, obviously there's, you know, the popular true crime shows, but I think a lot of people think of the movie Minority Report, Tom Cruise's movie, and um, it's like predictive crime, like you know a murder before it's going to happen, and they have psychics that they're using to see what's about to happen. And I know from as far as like technology and artificial intelligence, I know police departments are starting to use predictive technology that when they arrest someone, they put them in a database and they're starting to look to see if there's patterns like, does crime rise during summer or does this person have a pattern when they're most likely 
to, you know, commit a crime or sometimes they say criminals like escalate. They start out, you know, with petty crimes and then it escalates into something something more violent. When I'm thinking about the age of Aquarius and I think how I hope after the pandemic that our consciousness level is being raised. What do you think about that? Do you feel like as a society that our consciousness is shifting or do you think we're becoming more authoritarian? I feel like it's everybody's starting to wake up. It's been a a very selfish age that we've been in recently and everybody's, it's been quite isolating. We're connected, but we're disconnected because our devices are far more important. You know, we, instead of ringing our friend or even meeting them in person, we text them or, you know, we might send them an email, but we're not, we were sort of becoming more and more disconnected. And this pandemic has really shown us how sensitive we are, but also how fragile we are. We don't realize that, you know, in a, in a heartbeat, someone could be gone. We never really thought of so many people leaving the earth as what has happened in these last two years. What makes me sad, though, is that, say, in Australia, for example, you know, we've we've had, we might have 42 people die in New South Wales a day, which is a very small number compared to a lot of other countries around the world. But years ago, 42 people who died in a car accident or a plane crash, that would be catastrophic. And it still is catastrophic that 42 people could die in a day anyway. But now it's like, oh, that's just COVID. And that saddens me because that's still a life, still someone's loved one. And I, I think we need to have more of an appreciation of life and how fragile and important each and every being on this earth is. I do feel like people have become desensitized or at least here, like I know a lot of people maybe don't feel comfortable sharing maybe some of the stresses they've gone through or perhaps people they've lost. I think because of the type of work that I do, people feel comfortable to share with me stories of people they may have lost. And I am so surprised how many people I know who have lost someone to COVID or have lost someone during this time period, including myself. I lost multiple people, which I'm just really, really surprised. I lost my father, my mother-in-law, my best friend, my nephew, I'm just like, it, it goes on and on. And I'm thinking, you know, obviously it's it's very sad and I miss them dearly. And at the same time, I'm trying to look at it like, are the people leaving now? Is it like, if you're going to look at it from a spiritual perspective, is it a mass exodus or is God like saying, hey, wake up, we need to kind of change how we're, how we're doing things. And I'm always hoping that the consciousness is shifting, but I do feel like some people have gotten better, but I also feel it feels like people have gotten very tribal and and much more negative. I totally agree with you there. And I think a lot of the protests around the world and the anti-vaxxers and the vaxxers, like it's, it's a shame people are turning on each other, makes me very sad. And then even with, you know, different cultural backgrounds and even with females, you know, it's kind of like we're all becoming individualized but it makes it difficult because whether it doesn't matter what color you are what country you come from what you know what sex you are we're all human beings and I think we all matter so I think this has been the hard thing and I feel like people think they were walking around like sheep before but in some ways we're becoming more sheep-like because we're not looking at the bigger picture and it's about consciousness and you know getting together and trying to make a difference to everybody So what would you suggest, because I feel like from an energy perspective, I feel the energy changing so quickly on a daily basis. And it's, it's very 
interesting how quickly it's shifting. If people out there are feeling lonely or feeling disconnected, do you have any recommendations from a energy perspective or meditation practice, or perhaps they've lost someone they love and they want to connect with that person. Do you have any suggestions on how they could do that? I feel part of it is, yes, definitely meditation is wonderful. Getting out in nature, you know, if if you don't have a yard, if you've got a balcony or, you know, look up, just look, look outside. But I think getting outside amongst nature is the best thing. Looking for signs, one of the things is that I've really noticed the differences since this pandemic is people saying to me, I, you know, I see all these things now I didn't used to see, like there's butterflies that come and land on my shoulder and my mum passed away or I'm seeing a lady beetle or a dragonfly and I know they're just insects or I might have found a feather or they might find coins. But I really feel that people are becoming more aware and seeking to see is there life after life. And, you know, really realising, I mean, one one wonderful thing in one way, when people are lonely, the technology has assisted us. If we can't fly or visit a loved one, we can contact with them through Zoom or, you know, through WhatsApp and all the other technology that we've got, which is a good thing. But I think our physical touch is one of the things that we're missing. I was driving home this morning and I um, heard something on the radio how all these people were saying that a lot of their friends and family are now um, so addicted to word or that they don't speak to people anymore because all they're doing is playing a game and that kind of saddens me to think that sometimes we're letting other things get in the way. Yeah I think that it's a distraction so maybe they don't have to be present with their emotions or, or feel anything. It's, it's mentally distracting themselves. You know, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to live close to the beach. I live in Southern California. So I think I agree with you being able to take a walk. It definitely just kind of changes how I'm, how I might be feeling. I also noticed that people are much more sensitive, but I also know that a lot of people seem to be more willing to take risks now than they wouldn't take before, like packing up and moving or changing their job or leaving a relationship that no longer works for them. Are you seeing that in Australia as well? Oh, definitely. They're calling it the great resignation over here. So many people, especially because Victoria has had one of the longest lockdowns in the world, so many people on the east coast of Australia and and a lot from New South Wales as well, they're all moving to Queensland because it it was open and it's sunny, it's got the beaches. So a lot of people are sort of really questioning their way of living and also their work because we were actually working so much. I think people are now enjoying working from home and having a bit more freedom. There is a, a great big change, but I think too, I agree with you about getting outside. I'm not so far from the beach either, and I find that's very, you know, it's it's very refreshing and it's very calming to be there. It's unfortunate if someone doesn't have that ability or they're having if they're in an apartment, they don't have a balcony. You know, they've only got a window. So I think sometimes that's it's hard. One of the things that I do every April since the pandemic started, I for 30 days of April, I always take a photograph of the sky every day. And it was incredible. I started to get the most incredible images just at the sky. And I was in the end, I was getting angelic images in the clouds. And it was just that peacefulness to realize that, you know, we can always look up, it's free, and it changes every day, you know, and it's something that we're all part of. So we can all see the moon or the stars. You know, I think it's just that connection. And you still have kids at home, I think. How is it affecting kids? Are you seeing like affecting kids in school and and how are they coping? 
Oh, mine are all big now. They've, but um, two of them had to come back from overseas. They were living in Sweden, so they came back because of the pandemic. It's been hard for them because both of them had partners that lived overseas, and so that that's been challenging because they can't be together. My eldest one, well, he's about to move out, but I, I think it's just been hard all being in the house together. We all love each other, but I think sometimes the whole family was in full lockdown because we all had COVID, but it was staggering COVID. So one person would get it, then it would stagger. So we were in, in for a month. You really get to see things that annoy each other. <laughs> or that person that keeps eating all the food when you can't go to the shops, you know, <laughs> just silly things. But no, it's, it's good. It also brings you closer and shows you how appreciative you are of each other and how much you really love each other. Yeah, my son had to move home with me for like a year and a half. He's in school. It was weird. I was living in a one-bedroom apartment, and I, for whatever reason, I was thinking, I was like, I should get a two-bedroom apartment in case my son ever has to move back. <laughs> I laughed. I was like, I don't know why I'm thinking that. But, but it was like, literally, I did it, and then two months later, this was in February, I moved when did COVID start? February 2020. Yeah. I moved like February 11th. I got COVID February 28th. And like three months later, my son had to move in with me. And so I was like, well, I'm glad I did that. And then he's moved back out and, you know, he's back in school and working and things like that. But I thought, huh, it was it was really nice to have him at home, but I know that he was ready to go <laughs> when he left. He was like, all right, this has been great, Mom, but i got to get out of here. Thank yeah, you. It's, it's so hard when they come back after being away because it's kind of like things that, you know, the, that didn't annoy them or you. They come back and you kind of go, oh, okay, right, well, maybe it is time for you to find your wings again. But <laughs> find your wings, I don't mean it's going to heaven, but, you know, just sort of exploring the bigger, wider world. For me, I, I have a newfound appreciation for him, and I'm sure he does for me. And I was glad that we kind of got to ride it out together because I don't know how you feel, but in the beginning, the people that were around me, we were like, we just didn't know what was going to happen. And then at the same time, we were working on Brett's case, and it was weird. We worked on Brett's case all through COVID. It was just like, we have to do this. And at the same time, it was very surreal, but I think that we got access to information in his case that we normally wouldn't have gotten access to if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. Which is wonderful. Isn't it funny how one one door shuts, but then others open? Again, like you were saying about divine timing, sometimes things happen for a reason so that something else can you know, evolve. Yeah, I do agree. So what do you feel like as as we're moving towards different countries or reducing restrictions or just removing them altogether and others are continuing, what do you feel like we can expect over the next couple of years and, and how will things shift and change? It's interesting because Bitcoin and digital currency is becoming absolutely huge. I have so many clients that are involved in that and it, it kind of worries me in some ways I know it, it can come up and down but I also see the conflict with uh, Russia and the Ukraine and on the last two years I kept seeing that there was going to be something big happening up in northern Europe which concerns me and when I was 
suffering COVID a few weeks ago, I had this vision. It was really interesting, the vision of a red dragon joining forces with a green serpent. And then they showed me the flags. So they showed me the, the Chinese and Russian flags combining forces. And they, I felt it would be after the Olympics. But then I also saw North Korea entering into this alignment. Then they were showing me heads of government or a lot of heads changing or falling around the world and, and this is before the conflict with well in England I'm seeing there's a lot of things going on and of course we're seeing all the things with the royal family at the moment but also have concerns for Joe Biden's health because I didn't see him fulfilling his full term in office so I felt there was changes there. I had a few other friends that are like astrologers or psychics that said that they also didn't necessarily see him finishing his term. Yeah, it's, it's sad because I feel, look, the words I keep getting is it's a changing of the guard and I feel that people are no longer complacent and sitting back, Not I'm not specifically focusing on your politics, but just worldwide I think that a lot of the heads have not been really listening and they maybe have had their own agendas and, you know, it's almost like they become too arrogant to listen to the people and that's what they're there for. I have clients in Japan and in Taiwan and even in Papua New Guinea and there's been a lot of military presence up around those areas. It's all being kept kind of quiet but I really feel that there's going to be tensions building in around that area and I'm seeing military engagement. So I think that we really need to sort of work together to try and have a peaceful outcome instead of, you know, actually it going into full war. I think from the U.S. perspective, I think a lot of politicians are very surprised about how technology has given more freedom to individuals. Like you can reach people obviously more quickly, whether you're on Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever platform you choose to use, and you can mobilize people. And the CEOs of tech companies have a lot of power to shift people's opinions And because of algorithms, they can decide what information you see and what information you don't see. And I don't really think they ever expected that. And I don't really think people realize how quickly people can find information about you. Because I also work in cybersecurity. And I know that when I was working with Pat, who you've you've met, who's a homicide detective, When he will ask me to look for somebody and I can find them within 15 minutes, he is so surprised how the information that I'm able to access about somebody because I know where to look, I know what databases to access. And at least in the US, people can access that information. But in Europe, they have a law, GDPR has a law about the right to be forgotten, where you can be removed, your names can be removed from databases and not every single piece of information isn't allowed to be open for public consumption. And when you talk about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency allows people to shift money without someone being able to trace it. And so I know governments have issues with that as well. Moving forward in the age of Aquarius, how do you think it will benefit our kids, people that are being born now or kids our age, kids our own kids' age will benefit them? I think that they're becoming more mindful of having a more more sustainable lifestyle. I think that we're looking at recycling, looking at, you know, the the world's climate certainly changing and even just, you know, like here, this our summer has just been wet the entire time. I think people are just starting to realise that we need to look after each other. The, the recycling thing 
as well with, you know, we've got how many masks have we got used a day around the world? There's all this massive rubbish that's mounting up and I think people are really starting to think about being sustainable and even about living and people just having a right, you know, right to medical supplies or even vaccines if they choose. I also see consumerism. I think I think that that age group are starting to realise because it's before it was very much a throwaway society. You know, you had to have the latest clothing, and you'd see things online, or you'd see someone, you know, in the media, or someone, you know, an actor or someone that you looked up to, and you'd think, oh, I've got to have that brand, I've got to have that. But now I think people are being more mindful about, okay, well, I've bought that dress, or I've had those shoes, or whatever the clothing is, but if I wear it more than once and then I throw it away, they, I think they worry about landfill and what it's doing to the environment. So I really think we need to to get back to basics and start to think if we don't look after this earth, and I think the younger ones are thinking that. I, I have a lot of people when I do readings, even you know, in the, the 30-somethings, even questioning whether they should have children because they they worry whether there will be a world for their child to grow up in in the future. So it's, it's, it's a really a, a thought-provoking time to think about we need to do something now. I, I don't think, you know, you see the billionaires going off, you know, and, and saying, oh, we'll go and live on Mars. And it's almost like, oh, well, we'll rubbish the world and we'll all move somewhere else. But there's those of us that can't go. So we have to make the most of what we have here, you know, and, and protect this beautiful planet. Yeah, I agree. And I also feel like knowledge is power. It's been so nice talking to you. I love catching up with you. How can listeners contact you if they want to get a reading or perhaps buy one of your books or just learn more about you in general? Well, they can contact me through my website. So it's debbiemalone.com. So they can contact me. Are you working on any new books that you want to talk about? I've actually um, just finished doing the update of Awaken Your Psychic Abilities because I've, since first writing the book, there was a few things I thought I need to add that. And there's, especially there's a lot of questions people seem to be having about, you know, how to, how to do other things because our, our abilities are actually expanding. So I've actually updated on that and, and I've actually got a new set of cards that I'm working on presently. Amazing. I look forward to checking them out. I'm going to have to visit your website again, see what, what you're working on. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Debbie. Thank you so much. That would be wonderful. I really appreciate your time today and for having me on the show. Thanks, Debbie. To learn more about Debbie Malone, please visit her website at debbiemalone.com. Her best-selling books, Never Alone and Clues from Beyond, are available at Amazon.com for purchase. If you're a true crime fan, we recommend you listen to The Teacher's Pet to learn more about Lynn Dawson's murder and recent conviction of her husband, Chris Dawson. A special thanks to sound engineer Parker Ginn and audio producer Christopher Lang. This episode was recorded at Laguna Sound in Laguna Beach, California. Don't forget to subscribe to Death by Misadventure on your favorite streaming platform. Thanks for listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets 
if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.